This morning, we're in Daniel chapter 6. Daniel in the lion's den. Very famous story, but we can learn a lot from it. So a bit of background from last week. The Medes and Persians defeated the Babylonians. They conquered the mighty city of Babylon, thought to be impenetrable. And now they're setting up their own government and basically organizing themselves. So I'll pray, then we'll we'll just jump straight in. Dear Lord, thank you for the opportunity to study your word again. Lord, we just thank you that you have given us the mighty privilege of being able to look into this. And we know that Jesus said that in the volume of the book, it is written of me or about me. And so we just look to see what this tells us about Jesus and our relationship with Jesus and how we can draw near to Jesus and experience that relationship with God. So I just pray that you'll, you'll open our, the eyes of our heart, our spiritual understanding, and your Holy Spirit will teach us as we go through this today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Daniel chapter 6, verse 1. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be over the whole kingdom and over these three governors of whom Daniel was one, that the satraps might give account to them so that the king would suffer no loss. Then this Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. So the governors and the satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find no charge or fault because he was faithful, nor was there any error or fault found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any charge against this Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. So these governors and satraps thronged before the king and said thus to him, King Darius, live forever. All the governors of the kingdom, the administrators and satraps, the counsellors and advisers, have consulted together to establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree that whoever petitions any god or man for thirty days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which does not alter. Therefore, King Darius signed the written decree. Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home, and in his upper room, with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day, and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since early days. Then these men assembled and found Daniel praying and making supplication before his God. And they went before the king and spoke concerning the king's decree. Have you not signed a decree that every man who petitions any god or man within thirty days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing is true according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which does not alter. So they answered and said before the king, That Daniel, who is one of the captives from Judah, does not show due regard for you, O king, or for the decree that you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. And the king, when he heard these words, 
was greatly displeased with himself and set his heart on Daniel to deliver him. And he labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. Then these men approached the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and Persians that no decree or statute which the king establishes may be changed. So the king gave the command, and they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. But the king spoke, saying to Daniel, Your God, whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. Then a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signets of his lords, that the purpose concerning Daniel might not be changed. Now the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting, and no musicians were brought before him. Also his sleep went from him. Then the king arose very early the next morning and went in haste to the den of lions. And when he came to the den, he cried out with a lamenting voice to Daniel. The king spoke, saying to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, so that they have not hurt me, because I was found innocent before him. And also, O king, I have done no wrong before you. Now the king was exceedingly glad for him, and commanded that they should take Daniel up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no injury whatever was found on him, because he believed in his God. And the king gave the command, and they brought those men who had accused Daniel, and they cast them into the den of lions, them, their children, and their wives. And the lions overpowered them, and broke all their bones in pieces, before they ever came to the bottom of the den. Then King Darius wrote, To all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom men must tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, and steadfast for ever. His kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed, and his dominion shall endure to the end. He delivers and rescues, and he works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. Who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions? So this Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. So, just before we jump into verse 1, there's a big picture here. Can anyone see the big picture as it relates to Jesus? Daniel is a type of Jesus. First, yeah, he was innocent. He had an excellent spirit within him. There was no error or fault found in him. And they said, we shall not find any charge against this Daniel unless we find that concerned the law of his God. And that was what they did with Jesus. They didn't like what he did because he followed the proper law of God, not their own law. And what did the Pharisees and the religious leaders do? They went before Pilate and they petitioned. And got him to make that decision. But what did Pilate do? He tried to free Jesus. What did Darius do? He tried to free Daniel. Okay, so there's a lot of similarities here. And something about Daniel, your God, whom you serve continually. What's a testimony about Jesus? I always do those things that please the Father. 
serving God continually. So Daniel is a picture of Jesus, I believe, in this sense. And it goes on in verse 17, Then a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den. So Jesus was crucified and put in the tomb. And the king sealed it with his own signet ring and the signets of his lords. Jesus' tomb was also sealed. Pilate's signet ring. And what happened? Well, it's like a picture of the resurrection. God was able to deliver him. Because he believed in his God. And if you look at Psalm 22, that's exactly what it says. So that's like a picture of how Daniel is a a picture or type of Jesus. There's more similarities, but I just want to point out that there is a bit of a type there. Reminds us of who Jesus is and how he was wrongly accused and things like that. And the nature and work of Daniel uh, similar to Jesus in bringing glory to God. So, verse 1. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be over the whole kingdom. So, he's setting up his government. And Daniel was one of these three. The three main like governors over these 120 lesser authorities. Why was Daniel... Distinguished above the other two governors because an excellent spirit was in him and the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. So what's his excellent spirit? It's the Holy Spirit, yeah. What empowers us to live a life for God? Can we do it on our own strength? Absolutely not. Foolishness. This excellent spirit is the Holy Spirit. Daniel interpreted dreams, he prayed with effectiveness, he understood visions, he moved in prophecy, he experienced the miraculous. In other words, he was a man who was filled with the Spirit. And that's what made him so successful all the days of his life. Now, Second Chronicles 16.9, there we read that the eyes of the Lord go to and fro the whole earth, looking for a man in whom he might show himself strong, whose heart is perfect toward him. God is looking for a man in whom he might show himself strong, whose heart is perfect toward him. So our Father is looking for men and women in whom he can show himself strong, as he did with Daniel. And he can do with us. Remember those cloud of witnesses in in Hebrews 11 and 12? People who have lived the life, being filled with the Spirit, empowered by God to do amazing things and suffer great things as well. So verse 4, So the governors and satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find no charge or fault because he was faithful, nor was there any error or fault found in him. Now, what does it say in Peter? Live a blameless life that when they accuse you, in the end they will be ashamed because there's nothing to accuse you of. And that's exactly what's going to happen here. At the end of all this, those men who accused him are going to be ashamed. So Peter says, you will suffer for doing good as Christians. Daniel is suffering for doing good. The world will be jealous of us. The world will hate us for lots of different reasons. Mainly 
because we follow Jesus and they hate Jesus. It's simple. So expect this to happen to you as well. Satan hasn't changed his tactics. He's still the same. Verse 6, So the governors and satraps thronged before the king and said to him, King Darius, live forever. Oh, you're such an amazing king. All the governors of the kingdom. Now, is that true? (laughs) No. Daniel wasn't there. And so, first of all, they're lying. But there's this thing where people are easily persuaded because if they think that everybody else is doing it, then, well, I better do it too. It must be the right thing to do. It's called the mob mentality. If everyone else is doing it, then it must be the right thing to do. So it's a political manoeuvre and it's designed to frame Daniel. It's designed to trip up Daniel. And basically, they did this by appealing to the king's pride. They wanted to flatter the king. Hey, king, we've got a great idea. You're such an awesome king that, you know, we think that to, you know, maybe to promote your authority and, and the kingdom of the Medes and Persians, that no one's allowed to worship any god except you. You're not allowed to make any request of any god except you. And the king said, oh, that's a pretty nice thought. Oh, thanks. <laughs> and later on, he's going to regret that he fell to this flattery. Now, the decrees of the Persian king were unchangeable because he was thought to speak for the gods who could never be wrong and thus never needed to change their minds. So that's what someone said about why the Medes and the Persians could not, once they had written something and signed it, they could not change it. That's the reason for it. Verse 10, Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home and in his upper room, with his windows open toward Jerusalem. Now, why did Daniel face Jerusalem? Well, in First Kings chapter 8, when Solomon dedicated the temple, he prayed, If your people disobey you and are carried away, Captive as a result, if they face toward the temple and call upon your name, hear their prayer and deliver them. Therefore, as a student of the word, Daniel read his Bible. Daniel understood it was his responsibility to pray for God's mercy, deliverance and blessing on behalf of the people. That's what we should do too. Now, it's another picture of Jesus. What's Jesus doing for us right now? He's interceding for us, right? He's before the throne interceding for us. Daniel is interceding for his people. If we're going to be like Jesus, and we will be like Jesus, we should be growing to be more like Jesus day by day, being transformed into his image by the power of the Holy Spirit, then we will have this desire, and we need to nurture it as well, to pray for other people, to ask for God's blessing on them. Now, he knelt down on his knees. Now, What's more important, the position of the heart or the position of the body? It's the position of the heart. So what I mean by that is you can be on your knees and have an angry heart and say God's still not going to hear your prayer. But there is something about kneeling, and I think it when we do kneel, and I found this a bit myself, when we kneel it does change our attitude because... We're humbling ourselves and making the decision to humble ourselves before the Lord if we're doing it for the right reason. And a few examples. First Kings 8.22, Solomon, the great king, dedicating the temple. He was standing up. 
talking to the people, but as he prayed, he found himself on his knees in First Kings 8.54. So before all the people, he was on his knees before God. When Elijah prayed, he knelt. That's First Kings 8.42. And in Acts 20, when Paul was praying for the Ephesian elders, when he wouldn't see them any longer or anymore, he knelt. So there's a bit of a picture or theme in the Bible of people kneeling in prayer. Verse 10, continuing. Three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God. So the law had been signed. No prayers were to be offered to any other God. No requests were to be made of anyone except Darius. But Daniel did as was his custom. He prayed three times a day as was his practice. He wasn't doing anything different. Now, I'm putting a verse up for you. Psalm 55, 16 and 17. Who else did this? Who wrote this? Yeah, King David. Daniel wasn't the only one who did this. David was a man after God's own heart. What was his life characterized by? Regular prayer. As for me, I will call upon God and the Lord shall save me. Evening, morning and at noon, I will pray and cry aloud and he shall hear my voice. So if you look at the giants of the faith, even in the last few hundred years, they were all men and women of prayer. They cultivated this practice of praying regularly. So it doesn't mean they only prayed three times. It's not like, oh, we can't pray in between those times. But they were three times that they were set aside for that particular purpose and nothing else was more important. So I think it's a good thing for us to develop this practice as well, to quiet ourselves, go into our upper room or a closet, where whatever it might be, and just say, I'm going to start my day with the Lord. I'm going to check in halfway through the day with him. And before I hit the pillow at night, I reflect on the day with the one who gave his life for me. And it says, as was his custom since early days. Now, Daniel didn't say, all right, you signed the law. Now I'm going to get down on my knees even though I never did it before, and I'm going to open my window so you can see my radical spirituality. <laughs> Basically show off. No, he's not doing that. That's not his heart. That's not his motive. He was simply doing what he's always done, and that's where the power is. If the source of Daniel's success was the Holy Spirit, maybe he had an excellent spirit, the secret of his success was his consistent prayer, his regular communication with God. Now, what happens if we don't do this? Well, there's a story in Matthew 17. I won't read it. I'll just mention it. Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John, and, you know, he's glorified. But down below the mountain, there's a father, a very concerned father, bringing his suicidal son, this demon-possessed son, who keeps throwing himself into the fire and water and things like that. And they're unable to cast out the demon. And when Jesus came down and cast out the demon, the disciples asked, how come we couldn't do that? And Jesus says, this kind does not come out except by prayer and fasting. So, what was Jesus saying? You guys don't have faith. He said, oh, you have little faith. He rebuked them for their lack of faith. Where does faith come from? From your word and from prayer. The disciples were supposed to develop, Jesus wanted them to develop a lifestyle of prayer and fasting because they never knew, we will never know when a situation will come and confront us 
when we need the power of the Lord in our lives. We can't just conjure it up on the spot. We need to be resting in Him. We need to be abiding in Him. And that fruit and that power will be there as we do that. What about this? I know I should be praying, you might say, but I get so tired. Well, just think about Daniel. He's 85 years old, and yet he prayed morning, noon, and night. What about this excuse? But I'm too busy, you say. Daniel was a governor. He was, along with two others, the second in charge of the kingdom. There's not going to be much more stressful, busy job than his. But Daniel still found the time to pray. 85 years old, doing that really difficult job, stressful job, but still maintained his walk with the Lord. So just an overview of this verse, this one of my favorite verses in Daniel is verse 10. He prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since early days. Daniel didn't let the decree change his actions one way or another. He didn't do more praying or less. He simply continued his excellent prayer life. Now, why is that important? Well, there's danger in both directions. It would have been a compromise to pray less, because that's fear. But it would have been prideful to pray more. Now, what does the upper room mean? Well, what does it symbolize? Well, it's private prayer. It's made with no intention to impress others. Praying towards Jerusalem is remembering the place of sacrifice. When we pray, we should be keeping in mind what Jesus has done for us. Always keep in mind the cross. And then he knelt down on his knees. There's a few more people that did this who I didn't mention before. Jesus did in Luke 22.41. Stephen did, Acts 7.60. Peter, not Acts 9.40. Someone said, Kneeling is a begging posture and we must all come to God as beggars. It's a sign of submission because he is the one who gives us all things. All good gifts come from God. Prayer, the last thing that I didn't mention before was he prayed and gave thanks. Prayer and giving thanks should go arm in arm, like a husband and wife. Okay, you know, prayer and thanks should go arm in arm, like two twins. So when we pray, it should be with thanks. It should be with a thankful heart. Verse 11. Then these men assembled and found Daniel praying and making supplication before his God. Now, the attack came when Daniel was praying. Now, more than likely, you're not going to get attacked when you're on the golf course or on the tennis courts or you know doing something you enjoy, something the world finds acceptable. The real attacks of the enemy will come when you're in prayer. What about Jesus in Matthew 4? In the wilderness, fasting for 40 days. What was he doing? Praying and fasting for 40 days. Satan appeared and put him through those three incredible temptations. Now, how does this apply to us? This is really important. It's when we're praying that we're most easily distracted and fatigued because the enemy knows that if he can stop us from praying, 
He's neutralized what God desires to do in and through our lives. It's going to read that again. It's when we're praying that we're most easily distracted and fatigued because the enemy knows that if he can stop us from praying, he's neutralized what God desires to do in and through our lives. Okay? So the enemy is going to allow you to do lots of good things as long as it takes the place of prayer. <laughs> you know, you can be helping somebody, you can be serving in the church, you can be doing all these wonderful things, worshipping and listening to worship songs and whatever, okay? But if that's taking the place of prayer, then you have just fallen prey to the enemy. He's stopped you from praying. He's neutralized that power in your life, okay? Which comes from relationship with Jesus. Now, Jesus spoke so much about persistence in prayer in the Gospels. It's hard work. Jesus kept on saying again and again, you've got to be persistent in your prayer. He never said it was easy, but it is possible. And I just want to encourage you that it is actually possible before you say, I can't do it. Because I find the same struggle. All right, we're all human, we're all in this together. 1 Corinthians 15.10 in the Amplified, it says, this is Paul speaking, But by the grace, the unmerited favor and blessing of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not found to be for nothing, fruitless and without effect. In fact, I worked harder than all of them, the apostles, though it was not really I, but the grace, the unmerited favor and blessing of God, which was in me. Now notice, it's almost like a contradiction. He says, I worked harder than all of them, but it wasn't really me. It was God. It was God with me. His grace, His unmerited favor, this, this power that we receive that we don't deserve. And then there's Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Work hard. This sounds wrong, doesn't it? It's telling us to work hard, doesn't it? The Bible tell us to rest. Work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and fear. And what's one of the things he tells us to do? Pray. For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. So we use God's power to work hard. It's hard to get your mind around, but it is hard. But as we submit to the Lord, he will empower us to do these things which are humanly impossible. We can try for a little while, but if we're doing it on strength, we will just fail. We will give up. It'll just be too hard for us. But if we have this attitude of being on our knees and depending on the Lord and persevering, even if we don't feel like it, then God will come through and God will give us a strength. All right, verse 12. Now they go before the king and... They remind the king of his decree that no one's allowed to pray to any god or man except him. And they say, Ah, oh, that Daniel, who was one of the captives from Judah, does not show due regard for you. Is that true? Is Daniel saying anything bad about the king? No. So it's a lie. And they say he's praying three times a day. And the king, when he heard these words, was greatly displeased with himself and set his heart on Daniel to deliver him. And he labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. 
Then these men approached the king and said to the king, You know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and Persians that no decree or statute which the king establishes may be changed. So, you can't change it. I explained why before. Verse 16, So the king gave the command, and they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. But the king spoke, saying to Daniel, Your God, whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. So, does Darius have faith? Well, I'm not sure, because Darius was quite worried. He was working all day to try and free Daniel. So, one way you can think, no, he didn't really have much faith. But then he says this, so it's interesting. Whom you serve continually. So this is Daniel's testimony. Now, many of us occasionally display godly character before the world, but then we counteract the good by being you know, unwise or worldly. Daniel's testimony was marked by continual service. We need to be persistent. We need to be faithful. And this is why, it's, why as it says in Second Peter, we need to learn endurance and perseverance through trials. So if we don't learn endurance and perseverance, then we won't have a testimony like Daniel. And how does God teach us endurance and perseverance? Trials. God allows us to go through hard times, and we see that Daniel has already been through hard times, and that has produced in him endurance and perseverance. And that results in continual service. We don't give up. We don't lose heart. Verse 17, Then a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and the signets of his lords, that the purpose concerning Daniel might not be changed. And then the king goes home, he can't sleep, and then he comes back in the morning, and he cries out to Daniel with a lamenting voice, Daniel, servant of the living God. That's another revelation of who Daniel was. He was a servant. He had a servant's heart. Servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, again, been able to deliver you from the lions? Now, remember there's a stone across the den. He can't get out. So Daniel says, yes, but get me out now. No, he doesn't say that. He's quite happy to be in there. He doesn't ask to get out. In fact, he starts preaching to the king. O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths so that they have not hurt me because I was found innocent before him. And also, O king, I have done no wrong before you. Now, remember that we can't say I have been found innocent before him. We've all sinned. So again, a picture of Jesus. But Daniel had lived a blameless life and he lived a life of repentance. And so his relationship with God was pure. So he's surrounded by these lions. These lions were bred to be really ferocious and were kept in a state of near starvation. So you've got these massive but skinny lions who are absolutely starving. And so the moment anything that smelt like food went in there, <laughs> gone, all right? Now, who was this angel? doesn't say. So I can't be dogmatic on this, but I believe it was Jesus himself. Just like it was like the Son of Man with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. So again, Daniel is experiencing this 
beautiful companionship, the relationship, the presence of the Lord as he goes through these hard times. Now the king was exceedingly glad for him and commanded that they should take Daniel up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no injury whatever was found on him because he believed in his God. Now, how was Daniel preserved? It was through faith. Though his cause was righteous and he was unjustly accused, those things alone did not protect him before the lions. We as Christians will be unjustly accused. We will be persecuted. And like Daniel, we need to have this living, abiding faith in God that will get us through these difficult circumstances. And what does it say in Hebrews 11.33? He's described as one who by faith stopped the mouths of lions. So Daniel, because of his relationship with God, was demonstrating faith. And the king gave the command and they brought those men who had accused Daniel and they cast them into the den of lions, them, their children and their wives, and the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces before they ever came to the bottom of the den. Now, is that a biblical thing to punish the families of the guilty with the guilty? It's not. It says that only the guilty should be punished, not the family. But it's a custom of the Medes and the Persians. And that's what they used to do. A deterrent of committing a crime was your family would be punished as well. But there is a picture here for us. The sad truth is that when we sin, it always affects those who are closest to us. Whether we like it or not, when we sin, it affects our wives and our kids, our friends, our brothers, sisters, etc. Our brothers, sisters in the church too. As the Bible says in the New Testament, when one member of the body suffers, the whole body suffers. So when one member of the body has fallen away from the Lord and is not fellowshipping with the rest of the body, then the rest of the body is actually suffering. The rest of the body is not functioning as it should. It's now actually dysfunctional because it's not all together. We're not, they're not all praying together, not working together as one body. And that's the result of sin. So, verse 25 Then King Darius wrote, To all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that every dominion of my kingdom men must tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, and steadfast forever. His kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed, and his dominion shall endure to the end. He delivers and rescues, and he works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. Who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions? So God is the one who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. So this sounds like Paul, you know, writing in the New Testament. Oh, isn't Jesus great? All the stuff he's done for me. And, you know, here's his unsaved pagan king praising God because of a faithful servant. Daniel 6.28, so this Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. Now, Satan is 
the roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. First Peter 5 8. He has two basic ways to destroy and devour us. The first way he wants us to get involved in sin and then accuses us concerning our sin. And Revelation 12.10 says, For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. So this is future. This happens in the halfway point of the tribulation. So at the moment, our accuser is before God. Satan is before the throne. And he is accusing us day and night. And he also whispers in our hearts, not necessarily with a loud roar, but it could be a soft purr. You're a sinner. You have no right to pray to God. You'll never be used by him. You're not good enough. You've failed too many times. Now, if Satan and his demons can't devour you through sin, they'll make constant accusations against you until you're ready to give up and walk away from the Lord. This is called condemnation. But what do we do? Well, let's go to Revelation 12, 11. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. Now, what does the Father say when Satan brings an accusation against a believer? Not guilty. What sin? I can't say any sin. David's in Christ. Marissa's in Christ. She's perfect. We are perfect in Christ. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. John Corson said, Satan is a roaring lion to be sure, but he got tangled up in a cat fight with the lion of the tribe of Judah, and he lost. <laughs> so, Satan has no power over us. He has been defeated. So don't listen to those accusations. And it's very subtle. We give up because we think that we keep on failing. Don't listen to that. God wants you to succeed. Not because you're anything, but because of his living in you. It is God who works in you to produce both the desire and the power to do it. So, I want to think about, just to finish off, separation. Daniel lived a separated life, a life devoted to God, and it really showed. Daniel's life was focused on God. He was separated from the world. Now, where did that first separation become obvious in the book of Daniel? Very good. He refused to eat the king's food. Okay. So Daniel lived a separated life. He refused to partake of the things of the world. He wanted just to follow God. And right from when he was a teenager, he was praying three times a day, it says, as was his custom. That means, as was his habit from his youth. So being faithful to God means we are also faithful in every other area of our lives because that's the fruit of abiding. It's not my striving, it's my abiding in Christ. Now, here's a little New Year's introspection. I read the Amir Safati Weekly Roundup, and one of the things he says in there is this. I strongly feel that the word separation is for 2020. And he says some really interesting things here. Are we separated from the ways of this evil world? Are we separated from the religious and pharisaic spirit of the church? Are we separated from our own desire to make a name for ourselves? 
Are we ready for the great separation of the church from this world, the rapture? This is the year of separation. So he's not saying the rapture is going to happen this year. But in the Bible, there's this theme of separation. We need to be separate. God is going to separate us from the world at the time of the rapture. But in the meantime, we need to separate ourselves from the world and keep ourselves pure. Now, are we separated from the ways of this evil world? That's talking about sin, okay? Getting involved in the sinful things that the world does. But the next one is more of a heart matter. Are we separated from the religious and pharisaic spirit of the church? What does it mean? Well, what do you think it means? What is this religious and pharisaic spirit of the church? Self-righteousness, yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm a good person. I do all these great things and we measure ourselves by the things we do or don't do instead of our relationship with God. So there's a verse that he um, mentioned and I think it's good for us to focus on this just to finish off. It says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Notice the separation there. He might present her to himself, so as not part of the world, but belong to him. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each of you be in particular, so love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So, what happens there? The husband leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife. Or the man and the woman, they both leave their father and mother and they're joined to each other and they become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. We are separated from the world to become one with Christ. Marriage is a picture of our relationship with Jesus. We leave the old behind and embrace the new. So that was part of Amir Safadi's little blog. So I was thinking about this, and in the spiritual, to be separated from one thing necessarily means to be joined to something else. And the example here is when two people marry, they have to separate from their parents so they can be joined to each other. Now, the question is, what does it look like to be separated from the world? Separation from the world means that we are joined to Christ. But how do we know that we are practically joined to Christ or abiding in Christ? Can we look at our lives and say, well, I'm not doing all those sins? Is that evidence that we're abiding in Christ? Not necessarily, no. What about we look at some things that we are doing? I'm giving money to the poor. I'm going to church every week. Is that evidence of abiding in Christ? 
No. So what is the evidence of abiding in Christ? Well, we've learned about it today. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who feeds on me, eats my flesh, drinks my blood, will have eternal life. And they will never thirst. So that's combining a few scriptures there, summarizing a fair bit. But basically, if we are abiding in Christ, what it looks like is that we're feeding on him, that he is the focus of our lives. We're reading his word, his love letter to us, and we're making the time to pray to him and taking the time to listen to his still small voice where there's no hustle, no bustle, and no distractions. And this then leads to a life of obedience and full of victory, a life marked with contentment, peace, love, and joy. So it's not what we know that's most important, but rather who we know. Now, I'm convinced that there are many in the church who know a lot but love little. And that's a real danger in today's church. There's people who know little, but there's people who are well taught, but they love little. Okay, And they become legalistic, and it's very important that we don't fall into that trap. And this is what I think Amar means when he says, are we separated from the religious and pharisaic spirit of the church? So I think it's good for the new year that we ask ourselves these questions. We take the time to ask these questions. Am I separated from the ways of the evil world? Am I separated from the religious and pharisaic spirit of the church? Am I separated from my own desire to make a name for myself? And the important question is, as we just talked about, how do we know if we are? It's not about what we do or don't do, but the evidence is... I've got it there. The real evidence is not necessarily what I don't do, but rather what I do do, because much of the world's ways are attitudes of the heart which are internal and therefore hidden. If we have that prayer life, then we know that we're abiding in Christ. That's the evidence. If we've got a desire for the word, a desire to pray, and we're doing that, nurturing that, then that's good. Now, here's some questions for you. If reading the Bible isn't important to me, then what is? I repeat that. If reading the Bible isn't important to me, then what is? If praying and listening to God is not important to me, in other words, I'm not doing it, then what is? That's the question we need to be asking ourselves. What is more important in my life than God? What's stopping me from abiding in Him? These are tough questions. I'm applying these very much to myself as well. Obviously, if I'm not reading and praying very much, then I'm not as separated from those other things as I thought I might have been. True? If it was necessary for Jesus to get up early and spend time with the Father, then how much more do I need to if I'm going to experience intimacy with the Father? We need to follow the example of Jesus. Now, just been reading through Hebrews and the phrase draw near comes up a few times. You find it in Peter as well. Now, what does drawing near mean in relation to, especially the context of what we've done today? Drawing near or abiding means that we make deliberate choices to put God first. And as we put God first, make the time for him, then the obvious effect is those other things, idols, are done away with and they become less important and they no longer control us. 
Trying to be holy or righteous by eliminating sins and trying to control bad attitudes is a waste of time and leads only to pride and or despair. You can't fight the flesh with the flesh. Now, it's an awesome scripture in Hebrews. It's Hebrews 10, 19-23, and it's talking about abiding, of drawing near. And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him. I love that. Let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him. For our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean, and our bodies have been washed with pure water. Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm, for God can be trusted to keep his promise. So going right into the presence of God, go back to the Garden of Eden. What did Adam and Eve do? They walked with God daily. They just talked and walked. They had that relationship. It was so easy. Guess what? Nothing has changed. Actually, there's two things they had to do. They had to trust him. They had to trust his command not to eat the fruit. And that and spending time with God. So what does God want for us today? To trust him and to walk with him, to spend time with him. For me, it's just so simple and so beautiful. And an application of this for marriage, if we are joined to our wives, biblically, spiritually, then we will be, what's the evidence of this? Praying for them, praying and reading the Bible with them if they're willing. How else is spiritual unity possible? And if there is no spiritual unity, then there is no real unity in the marriage. At some level, there will be dysfunction in the marriage. And we've experienced that in our own marriage. Most Christian couples would say that they have spiritual unity. But I can ask a similar question to before. Do I love my husband or wife enough to take the time to pray with them and read the Bible with them on a regular basis? If not, then what is more important? If I'm not doing it, then what's more important? Get rid of that thing that's more important. Get rid of the idol that's more important. So, as husbands and wives, spiritual unity will be a fruit. It's not a work. It's a fruit of our individual relationship with God, our individual unity or abiding in Christ. If we're not making the time to abide in Christ individually, then we'll have nothing to give our spouse and just going through the motions. And it's the same for every part of our lives. So Daniel didn't just know about God, have his doctrines all right and his prophecy up to date. Rather, everything he did was based on his relationship with God. And every other part of his life was controlled and influenced by God. He spent a lot of time talking to God and studying his word. His life was based on the rock, on Christ. And as a result, he's secure in his life. And just want to remind you of Daniel 6.10, now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home and in his upper room with the windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since early days. 
So the reason for Daniel's success, he made the choice to draw near to God. And the resulting peace, love, joy and contentment he found in that divine relationship freed him from the allure or draw of the world and any preoccupation with himself. Getting what he wanted. And I just want to finish with Philippians 3, 6 to 11. This is Paul talking about the things that he thought were valuable and throwing them away. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. I once thought these things were valuable. So we can be thinking that obeying the law without fault, trying to do the right thing all the time, is something that is really important. But Paul says, I once thought these things valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have discarded everything else, counting all as garbage, so that I can gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law, that is, self-effort. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. It's not me, it's all about him. For God's way of making us right with him depends on faith. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another I will experience the resurrection from the dead. So, if you want to experience or know the resurrection power of God in your life on a day-to-day basis, then you need to experience the resurrection. But, how do you experience a resurrection? Could Jesus be resurrected if he didn't die? To experience this resurrection power, the resurrection life, you first need to die. Positionally, we are dead to the world and alive to Christ. But practically, this is my choice I need to make each day. Luke 9, 23-24, Then he said to the crowd, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Take up your cross when? Daily. And follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. The cross is a picture of death. We need to die daily. Often this means accepting and embracing the suffering that comes our way as being from God for our good. So if there's no dying, then there'll be no living, no resurrection life. If I'm not choosing to abide, then I'm not abiding. It's as simple as that. All God wanted from Adam and Eve in the garden was their trust and their time so they could communicate and experience divine love. Daniel made that choice, and now the choice is ours. Will we trust God? Are we willing to give up our time for him and spend that time in prayer and reading his word? Dear Lord, thank you for this beautiful picture of a separated life, of a life where Daniel was purposing to put you first, to not defile himself with the things of the world. And it wasn't just about not doing things and doing things and keeping laws. It was about a relationship. And all the other things that he did was a fruit or a consequence of his relationship with you. So, Father, I just pray that you'll help us to make that choice this year, that, Lord, we can realize that what we're talking about is something we cannot achieve on our own. Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. 
But Lord, you want us to abide in you. So I just thank you that you are a good God. I thank you that you love us. I thank you that you're patient with us. I thank you that you know our frame, that we are dust. We don't have to be anything special, but we just need to submit to you, bow our knees in our heart, and just ask you for help. Help us to do this and help us to enjoy our relationship with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.